0: In episode 22 of Goat Gab, we are turning our attention to the male half of the herd. Join Cameron and me as we discuss things to consider when evaluating bucks, whether it's making the decision to retain a baby buck for a future herd sire, to offer a buck kid for sale, or deciding when to move a mature buck into a new home.
1: Welcome back Goat Gabbers to another exciting edition of Goat Gab. I'm Cameron. And I am Laura. And today, uh, we promised a guest. The guest is coming. We had to clear things up with the schedules and whatnot, get some certain approvals. But I guarantee you the guest is coming,
0: just not this week. So you're getting Laura and Cameron time. But that's fun. We'll have a good time, and we'll get our special guest next week. So it'll all work out great. Yes, and I always cherish Laura and
1: Cameron time because... (laughs) To, to me, it's a conversation to just just kind of break down some things that are happening on our farms. And plus, when I have a guest, I really want to spend time with that guest and get to know them and really answer all the questions that we have compared to talking about what's happening on our farms.
0: Yeah, I do too. I do too. So it's it's always good to talk goats with uh, friends and um, I consider all of our listeners friends too. So it's, it's, it's a highlight of my week for sure, Cameron. So what's going on on your farm?
1: So uh this over the last couple weeks here um we've got done with weight one of kidding we finished with triplet bucks um and which was Yuck. exciting I guess I, um <laughs> I texted my dad and I was like oh, I think there's a buck but I think there's some more in there and waited a little bit and she spit out another one and there was a buck and I was like, oh, the third, oh, there won't be a third one. She's done. Nope. What do you know? Five minutes later, I come back out, and whoop, there's a third one, and it's a buck. And I text my dad that you know triplet bucks out of dough, and, and he was like, oh, you suck. And I said, I love you, too.
0: <laughs> Not your fault.
1: You yeah, couldn't help it. Exactly there. So, so wave one. Yeah, wave one is done. We're uh, milking 15 right now. Um, five and one. No. 15, 14, something like that, all with the milk machine, and that's back out there. One thing I did I did see when we were milking by hand for those so many cold days before we had the machine out there was we saw lots of chapped udders, just you know, us from getting exposure and whatnot there. So um, if you do farm in cold weather and you do hand milk, uh, you may see those. So just uh, FYI for future years. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and those poor little does. I know that there's all kinds of things you can use to fix a chapped udder. Um, do you have a special a special something yeah. that you use?
1: Um, udder balm and bag balm. Um, those were our biggest things there that we had. Um, applied every day, and that kind of healed it back up. And also getting back to the milk machine too was great as well, just having some consistency of pressure on the on those teats of those
0: animals. Right. Well, um, I know the utter balm is something that I've used on my own hands. I mean, it it that really does or uh, bag balm? Excuse <laughs> me. You mean the stuff in the little green square tin? Yeah, bag balm. Yeah, that stuff's yeah, great. It's exactly, it's pretty amazing. You can get it
1: at a farm store. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we got done
1: with that there. Um, we uh, let's hear Two weeks ago, we had a judges refresher, so all Adga judges were invited to attend a, a virtual refresher, kind of like some continuing education classes for judges. Um, and it's it's really interesting to note, and I don't know if the general public knows this or not, but last year, there were a lot of mistakes made on ADGA report of awards. Um, and Laura, you serving on the judges committee, obviously understands this <laughs> um, and seeing those report of awards. Um, and that's what really spawned um, this this refresher there.
0: It's nice to know that the hard work that the shows committee does addressing all of those um, issues on the report of awards gets listened to. So I'm I'm glad that they had a refresher for you. It's it has blown my mind on the mistakes to get made on a form that is really pretty easy to fill out. I think, but uh, obviously not. The uh,
1: Well, we can talk. We can debate that some other time about how hard the form can be to fill out because I, I disagree and I, I voice my opinion on that there that it's it's a very complicated form and if you've never been a show secretary or or even a judge or someone running the show you would understand how difficult it can be as an exhibitor normally you just sign and go um, but it's not as easy as it looks with the math there it can be
0: I can understand that point that is that is so a there- tricky part of it for sure yes Yes.
1: Um, one thing what also happened here is, um, so Catherine came home from school this week. She kind of had a longer break, um, and we brought in a special um, buck that I had bought. It was the Christmas, Valentine's Day, Arbor Day, birthday, any type of holiday that Cameron forgets um, present. Um, so, um, and it was a mature buck, and it it's different bringing in a mature buck than it is when you bring in a baby buck. So um, dealt with some of the, the logistical challenges of shipping a goat across um, the United States, and then just dealing with some of the other challenges as well, when it comes to bringing in um, a, a mature animal.
0: That sounds like a good topic for a podcast sometime, Cameron.
1: Yeah, I think it. I, yeah, I think um, we will document that and we will bring it up on a later podcast. Um, but I do want to shout out an, an unpaid um, advertisement here. Um, Premier Hauling out of Texas did a phenomenal job. Um, just great contact, great um, care of the animal. Um, that buck was on the trailer for four whole days, and it looked like he'd been on there two. So very impressed with that, and he's a newer hauler as well. So I was very impressed with the quality there. So no free ads, but I will give a free ad. and Shout out to Premier
0: Hauling there. It's hard to find somebody who can do that.
1: Yeah, it is. And, it, and it's very, it's it's really good because he has goat experience. Um, granted in the Boar Goat side, but you know, they show, they see some of the same types of, of things there. So um, it was really, really good experience. And it's something that if you're nervous about it, talk to the transport um, and talk to the breeder as well of said animal you're getting it from because it does take a lot more time um, on a transport compared to just going and picking it up right from the farm
0: or an airport.
1: (laughs) Yes. Or an airport for that matter there. But I will say compared to some of those other options, it was rather affordable. You know, think about the cost of flying. Generally I quote flying at about $500 per goat there. With health certificate, crate, mm. flight, all of the other hullabaloo you need there. Um, it only cost us 350 bucks to get him from, you know, Northern California all the way to Illinois.
0: Oh, that's really reasonable. Very good. Yeah, this yeah. it sounds like this is a hauler yeah. that deserves um, some advertising. Very good.
1: Yeah, absolutely there. Um, continuing on what happened here, lots of things here. Uh, just some evaluation of both my herd and Catherine's herd, and that's always fun to do, especially when you bring in someone who is unbiased on your farm, doesn't have an emotional attachment to goats, and can just tell it like it is. Um, That is worth its weight in gold and worth the cost of the engagement ring to our farm. So that was great. (laughs) So that, well, that's good. So what did you learn? Um, that... Catherine doesn't really agree with me and agrees with my dad more. <laughs> so, Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting drive back. But, um... No, it was... It was... It's interesting to see because she can just tell it like it is and we can, uh, you know, pick goats out of pens and we can work goats like we would at a show and whatnot and really size them and see them up and, and it's just a different experience that's really good for, for you as a, as a breeder to see when you bring in an unbiased opinion there.
0: Well, very good. I, I'm, I'm glad that that didn't end up in um, a cattle working type argument or um, any issues like that. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that's a lot on what's on my plate here. Um, Laura, what's happening on your
0: farm? We finally have baby goats. We had our first kids born yesterday. So, um, it was really, really exciting. Um, a four year old, um, doe gave us twin doe kids to start out with. And it was a beautiful day here in Missouri. So she decided that kidding outside by the hay feeder was a smart idea. And that's where she was. So, um, two little, two little tan does. And then, um, my uh, daughter Caroline's very, very special doe named What's Your Fancy is a also a four-year-old, and she's the doe that we had a total mastectomy done on her last year, and she kitted. We uh, induced them so they would kid at the same time because Fancy happened to be the one who got bread first, and so we wanted to make sure that we had milk, so... Um, Fancy kitted and blessed us with triplets. So we got two does and a butt kid. So um mom's doing fine. They're great big, huge, beautiful kids. And uh you know, we did what we do every year at this time of year. We fall in love with dairy goats again because those babies are just so darn cute. So it it was it was a good day for us.
1: So your goat fancy,
0: she has
1: no udder, correct? No udder at all. She's the one who got the mastectomy. Yes. Okay. So do you think she put more energy towards developing those kids inside her than focusing on milk production and whatnot? And that's what made those babies so big.
0: Um, I don't know. We laughed about that. We kind of teased about that a little bit, um, because the other does kids are, are smaller (laughs) than hers. Um, but on the other hand, fancy has always had big kids and she's always had triplets or quads. So, um, I I don't know that I'll have to, I'll have to think on that. Um, She herself is in really great condition, you know, doesn't have that totally deflated look that sometimes does do when they have triplets or quads and, and they're bigger kids. Uh, They were all presented perfectly. She had plenty of room to have them. And uh, the only thing that was kind of funny is after, after she had them, we let them stay with her for just a little bit. And of course she was cleaning them off and talking to them and, and stood up and, all three of those kids started looking for their first meal, and it was a little bit sad because she kept nudging them back there, and there was, of course, nothing for them to have. So, um, anyway, we we told her she was a good mama, and she still got up on the milk stand and got to have her her feed this morning and and her molasses water and all that. So it was. It was, it was a worthwhile surgery to have done. It wasn't as expensive as I thought it was going to be. And she's really come through it well. So it's nice to still have those good genetics in our herd and be able to handle that. So that was a good thing. That's about it. We've got four more does due this week. So, and that's, that is life in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. So my dad came on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. When's Elizabeth coming on?
0: Oh, she would like to. <laughs> uh, maybe we'll maybe we'll have to have her pop in and say hi sometime uh, when we record for next week. So she's um, she's taking the week off. So she's going to help with chores and kidding and um, taking care of does. So uh, I'll I'll see if she'd like to do that. She'd probably enjoy that. So a lot of things happening in Adga this week.
1: There is. Um, it looks like this week here and there's been continued discussions on DNA um, on Facebook, on district director pages, obviously um, on some of the podcasts in the industry. So um, it just seems like there is a lot of hullabaloo on DNA and it all centers around the Nigerian dwarf breed.
0: Yeah. Wow. And um, boy, there's a lot of heartache and a lot of a lot of upset people out there about all this, and I part of me thinks it's really interesting because remember Cameron a few years ago when they came out with that, um, with that new policy that starting in 2023 all bucks were going to have to have a DNA on file before you could register offspring out of them, and there was a huge uproar in, in crying out that this was a bad thing to do. And now it's almost like it's gone 180 degrees and you've got people who are now saying, well, maybe we need to require DNA for all goats that are going to be registered. So it's just interesting how the tide changes, don't you think?
1: Yeah. And as someone that was adamantly against that um, semen or to be required to have a collection on file, you'd have to have a DNA test. And as someone that was against um, mandatory DNA typing of all Bucks in 2023, I understand the concern that those people have. I understand the value it can bring to the registry, but as a person who loves the free market as well, I also think it needs to be a market driven service that's provided. I understand the benefits it can have when it comes to um, dairy goat research and understanding the genome there, but at the end of the day, that's not really my prerogative as, as a dairy goat breeder. I don't really care about the dairy goat genome. I just want to improve my
0: goats. I agree with that too. And, um, you know, I've had the goal for quite a few years that eventually my entire herd will be DNA tested. And I, every year I kind of work on that a little bit as it as I decide to keep mature does in the herd, I'll get those does tested. So most of my yearlings are not, but my two year olds and on up are, are working on that. But I, again, I think it should totally be market driven. There's there. I think I've said this before. I've never really decided not to buy an animal because it wasn't DNA tested because I feel like that the relationship that I have with the breeders that I choose to buy an animal from, um, i'm okay with with trust there but if ever i wasn't or if it ever got to the point that i was concerned about it um i would totally at my own expense ask for a dna test before i bought an animal
1: but on the flip side of that to me as as a breeder that means you don't trust me and and that concerns me a little bit more that you're not trusting my word because of my you know my past dealings or my integrity as well as a breeder so i you know, to me, it might raise a little red flag as a seller to say, okay, do you really not trust me at all? but it also depends on the relationship as well that you have with said buyer. If you're, you know, Joe Blow Schmo from Quebec, Canada, you know, that, and you're asking for a DNA typing, you know, I might be a a little, like a little skeptical of that because I, I don't know. It's just, it just really perplexes me, but I do believe it. Go ahead. ahead. Well, I
0: was just going to, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I can understand that point of view. Totally. Cameron. Um, like if you were going to buy a buck from me and you said, Oh, by the way, Laura, um, I know that's how you said it is, but would you please DNA test it before I'll commit to it? I probably would be a little bit upset by that. Um, but on the other hand, yeah. maybe if we look at it like health testing, I mean, um, I would totally be fine with you s- if you wanted to buy a dough for me and said, Hey, Laura, would you get a CAE test on her before she leaves your farm? i totally, and it's, and I wouldn't take offense at that. So I don't know. I think, I think there are two different ways to look at that too.
1: Yeah. And obviously this is something that the listeners have said is I admire how the podcast hosts don't agree on everything. Uh- <laughs> So, and this is something that, you know, Laura and I have different opinions about, but we're still great friends as well in, in the process and can have discussions around this.
0: <laughs> we can. And I promise I wouldn't get upset if um, um, you asked me to DNA something or vice versa. I hope you wouldn't on the other side.
1: Yeah. And I, I, I wouldn't either. Um, but again, it, it breaks down this trust and going back to this issue is, you know, they said they weren't going to do this for all bucks, and now here they are in 2023 mandating this. They said, and, you know, what's next is the question, Is we often ask, is are all animals going to be, you know, have to be DNA typed and all of my DNA is going to go towards dairy goat research of my goats? That's something maybe I don't really consent to as well, because I want my animals, you know, genetic makeup to not be stored in a database as well. So again, me putting on a tinfoil hat, um, which I I can do sometimes, um, there, but you know, it just, I don't want the association to go so far and say, you know, we all goats mandatory DNA type. It needs to be a market driven uh, approach of things and let it go from there.
0: I think that is something, Cameron, that you and I definitely agree on. Make it market-driven, not mandatory. Bucks I can I can deal with, yes. but I, my goodness, to do all the does, I think about the dairies that we rely so much on the data that we get from dairies as far as production data and transmissibility of traits and so forth. They would run screaming from ADGA, I would think, if they would require a DNA test on every animal that they registered, and we would lose all of that data. That would be awful.
1: Exactly, you are exactly right there, and we could we could probably dive into this a lot more, um, but let's stop for the sake of time and our <laughs> let's. listeners'
0: ears. So, um, uh, so <laughs> um, let's we talk about the national show rules. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? A little bit of a change in there. I
1: I love this ruling. This this change and taking out the part two of it, which you know, they made some changes in part two of it was, um, you know, discontinuing or saying that judges don't need to select or check teats um, until the cut is made. I think they absolutely need to check teats, and here is my reason why. You go to the national show, and that might be your first show you take kids out to, and you've maybe never looked under the hood there before, so you don't know if that goat has three teats or not until you go to the national show and actually get it evaluated by a licensed judge. So I think that is important as heck. Also, in a judge's mind as well, that's one goat that you have to weed out, or one less goat you have to look at, unless you have to think about and evaluate to some extent in those giant classes of 50 plus.
0: So uh, here's another example of you and I seeing things a little bit differently here. Okay. So yes, I think that extra teats do get missed sometimes and um, you know, that can happen. So let's say that we have a beautiful doe kid that just happens to have a um, an extra teat on one side or fish teat. Let's say that. Okay. And, um, she is so beautiful that she makes it through the cut. So now you've got 20 in the ring. She's made it in the top 20. And let's say it's at that point that she, it gets caught that she has that extra teat. I guess I don't see it as that big of a deal because, um, the time saved by not checking 85 Nigerian junior doe kids teats, I think um, is, is time saved in a good way compared to the fact that you might possibly find an extra teat. How often does it happen at national shows that you get kids in there with their, with extra teats?
1: Um, I would say more times than we can probably think. We don't okay. obviously know though, because those animals just get cut, um, from the class and whatnot, no matter how nice they can be. Um, I remember judging a show, um, and it was a youth show and the best goat in the class had an extra teat. Like, oh. I think that is an optic that gets um you know overlooked in the when the best goat in the class and it was clearly the best um and it's at the end of the line i think that's something that that you're like people are like whoa what's going on there you know I'm, can this guy not not judge goats obviously he can because what he did he just found an extra teat so <laughs> right. I, I i think that 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 is that is an optic that they're trying to that. I could see them hiding at the national show where you have this gorgeous kid and she's in, you know, 19th, 20th place because of that checking teeth. So,
0: so what you're saying is that maybe it's a, a kinder, gentler way to take care of that problem when you can just excuse them in the first go around because of the teat problem. It doesn't embarrass anybody. There doesn't have to be a big public statement of, ha ha, they took a goat there with an extra teat. And honestly, they happen to everybody. So it's not, I'm not saying it's a terrible big deal, but I can, I can see that point too. I, I guess I'm just saying I can see both sides of it and, and why maybe it was suggested, but I can also see that, you know, it's good that they're listening. It's good that directors are having um, an an opportunity to give input and it's good that that's being listened to. So all positive all around.
1: Yes. What really Well, my last thought on this is why did we say we have to not check teats? Why was that thought of? But yet we're still measuring Nigerian dwarf junior and intermediate kids at the national show. If those goats are over height, you should be able to tell just by
0: eyeballing it. Well, yeah, I would think so. Why? I've always wondered, why do we measure Nigerian dwarfs anyway until they're at their mature age?
1: I don't – or I I have talked to some judges about this and say I don't like to measure a Nigerian dwarf until it's at least 10 months old, um, you know, just for, just for time purposes and whatnot at big shows. And everybody's got a small Nigerian dwarf, you know, kid, and there's like 30 in the class and whatnot, and they're jumping around, and you know, they're really cute, but they're really hard to evaluate as well there.
0: For sure. I, I could totally see that. So, hmm.
1: so there's that. I, I think the rest of the national show rules are okay. You know, I'm glad the, the board took that one out though. Cause I was going to be hot to trot if they did it.
0: Well, it'll be good to see how it works out. And of course I'm still eager to see what folds out between now and then and what other rules might be able to be revised. Like, you know, maybe the, maybe the no sitting at ringside or maybe the mask rule or whatever. So it's, It's just exciting to know that it's coming. I can't wait. I'm so excited for nationals this year. So um, more to come on that, I think.
1: Yes. Laura, what about the next generation uh, registration systems?
0: Yeah. So I got to spend some time last night and went through the tutorial on it. And it looks really cool. I think it's, it looks, it looks very slick. It looks like, um, A lot of work has gone into it and um, it'll be really neat to see how it goes once it is up and running. Oh, the one other thing that came up was some discussion about the new um, executive director position. Do you know anything about this, Cameron? There was no update, but what some of the
1: posts I saw that really concerned me was the fact that the directors on some director email list had asked for updates on it or they had asked for links to the job posting or whatever and and no one um you know got back to them or really that there. so it seems like there could be from my interpretations i don't know this there could be some lack of communication that's happening within the directors and adga staff or adga the executive committee or something there and again i'm i'm not on the forefront so uh, take it for what i see on facebook
0: yeah i guess i would think that if they're actively looking for somebody they would have posted um a job description or opened it up for people to apply that would be interested. I it's, I, I found it kind of interesting that I haven't seen that anywhere.
1: Yeah, I agree. So just, <laughs> that's just my musings or thoughts on that there, but I think we need to just jump right in and talk about something that I think is so, it's a discussion that is so needed and I wanted to have it sooner, but um, it didn't happen, but it's a discussion that, Uh, it's part two in our three part series of do they stay or do they go? And it's about bucks. And, and I am seeing so many animals that need to have a, and this is a hot take of mine and take it with a grain of salt, a shot of tequila, um, that, that need to have a band around their, their nuts because they are not going to be contributing to the, to the gene pool. Actively, that is going to progress a breed forward. And that is my hot take right there. You might have many of them throughout this discussion, but this is something I feel very passionate about.
0: Yeah, I do too. And I think anybody who's been a been a breeder or been around for any bit of time, A, feels passionate about this topic. And B, probably can look back to a time in their own evolution as a breeder where they think, man, I should have banded that buck. I shouldn't have you know, I wasn't ready to sell a buck at that time in my um, evolution as a breeder. It wasn't time yet. it wasn't a good buck but for whatever reason you did. So um, I think that I think that it's a good topic to explore and um, probably like everything else in in deciding what to keep and what to go. everybody has a little bit of a different idea but maybe we'll give you some things to think about as you decide, Um, Does he keep his jewels or does he not?
1: Um, One thing I do want to say is that you you might be thinking, okay, Cameron and Laura were considered big breeders. We've been doing this for a while by promoting by not promoting, you know, smaller breeders to breed their goats and save their bucks. That's only going to help their market. That's not what this goal of this podcast is about. The goal of this podcast is to really focus on making sure the right bucks get into the market and get into the genetic base that can improve the breed. Because what we've seen over the last couple of years is that a breed can make tremendous progress when the right bucks are are used. But if the wrong bucks are used, you're not going to get good progress of that breed in that specific area.
0: For sure. And um, Cameron is a big breeder. I am not. So, um, you know, I, I have sold some bucks. I do sell some bucks sometimes, but I definitely would not consider myself a big hitter in the game. But I also know that, you know, sometimes you will have people who will ask you about buying bucks or selling bucks. And, and it's just, it's just good to have a mindful idea behind it rather than just think, Hey, I've got a buck who has blue papers And his great great grandma was a great granddaughter of the 1990 national champion, and that means I probably need to use it. So, um, you know, let's let's go down this path a little bit and talk about what are maybe some considerations for keeping a good herd sire. Um, Maybe keeping it for yourself, or maybe selling it to somebody else. But or even when you're looking at a sire to buy from somebody else, these these things fit into there too i think
1: yeah i think the first thing that comes to mind and if you're in in the know if you know you know as the kids would say um of dairy goats you you see this chart floating around on facebook or some people might have it on their website and it's how to select a potential herd sire and i think it's a really good place to start I think there are places where I've not followed the chart as well. I'll be the first one to admit that. But I think it's a great place to start if you haven't seen it yet.
0: I agree. And let's 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 start our discussion with that, Cameron. All right. So the
1: first question is, and I think this is what gets people really confused is have I been raising goats long enough to recognize slash identify superior and inferior animals?
0: This is huge right here. Yeah. It is huge. I agree. Um, At what point do you feel like you personally or somebody else, at what point do you feel like you can identify that, you know? Um, And on what level? I think those are, those are important aspects of that question.
1: Yeah. I'm not going to give you a, a textbook. You have to be at year four in order to identify this because that's not the case at all. There are people that can jump into dairy goats because they have, background in other livestock that might be able to sell a buck faster because they've been able to develop an eye based on other species.
0: Yes, I agree with that. And honestly, Cameron, don't you, I'm going to see if you agree with this statement. There are some people that just have an eye. Sometimes they have it from a really young age and they can look at animals and they can say this animal is superior because of this reason, or this is the type of animal that I am going to breed. And this is what's going to get me to where I want to go. And it's, it's almost like, I don't know, a genetic thing or it's an art or they're just blessed with being able to do that. But there are some people who just innately seem to be able to pick out a good animal.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. So I think that's the first thing to start there here is, And the next one, which gets you mostly in the Nigerian dwarf and Nubian reason, are any of the reasons for keeping him intact based on coat or eye color?
0: (laughs) Yeah. But but you know what? I will tell you, I've had that come up with alpines, too. You know, um, people like black alpines sometimes. So um, I've had people say, oh, Mm. do you have any black bucks? I'm like, oh, yeah, but maybe not what you would want to use. So I agree. You can't look at the color, the eye color of the coat. I don't like selling. If I have
1: a buck and I just did this the other day, actually with a buyer was, Hey, I got a buck. That's coup block. And I got a buck. That's black. Which one do you want? You know? Um, And she's like, "Well, send me a picture. And I still haven't got around to sending the pictures. Um, Those pictures are coming. They will be, if you're listening to the podcast. (laughs) Uh, So, um, but, but, letting the buyer choose the color if they're if they're of equal value is great, but I don't think you should be saying, oh my god, I'm gonna keep this one because it's a chocolate colored alpine and I don't see those very often. I'm gonna keep them intact.
0: And how often do you see people who are on Facebook or other social media sites looking for a buck and the only thing that they say is I want it to have blue eyes be pulled and have moon spots. okay. That's not a compelling reason to keep all an animal the as time. a buck all the time. For sure.
1: No, it is. No, it is not.
0: So there's that. And then do the dam. Go ahead. I was just going to say what you were going to say. Do the dam and her ancestry possess <laughs> and consistently transmit desired traits for structure and, or production. And is this demonstrated via milk test and appraisal scores? That's a heavy one.
1: It is a heavy one, and there's a lot to unpack from there. I guess I should – we should give credit to Rebecca Clark for, for making this chart and then putting it on Facebook um, because this, this chart I just found – I literally just searched buck chart fa- uh, buck chart for selling, and it popped up there. So Rebecca Clark did a great job putting this together, and I really admire this. But this is a loaded question, this, this next question here um, – because, you know, you might not have the data if it's a yearling, if it's a first freshing, two-year-old. Heck, if it's a three-year-old, you might not have the data to say, you know, I've only been on milk test for one year or I've only been on appraised. She's goat's only been appraised once because I live in an area that only gets
0: appraised once. For sure. And again, it kind of goes back to that first one. Do you, ha- have, do you have an eye? Do you know that an animal is superior? Because frankly, some of the best bucks that I've made some good progress with have been out of yearlings because you'll know, you you'll look at that yearling and you'll just say, um, this one has what I want. This is what I've been breeding for and I'm going to use that to transmit that hopefully to other animals in my herd. So sometimes you don't have that data behind it.
1: I will say if, if we had followed this specific chart, my father would have never gotten a buck out of the 17th place yearling at the national show.
0: No, you wouldn't have. And that
1: would have been a shame. Yeah. Yes, it would have. So, you know, this is, this is kind of a subjective question here based on what resources you have at your disposal. Um, and this is only in my opinion though. Um, but you know, it, but it is a good question to consider and ponder when you're going to decide, hey, let's sell this as a herd sire.
0: Right. Right. And then I think, you know, going on through that, if those animals are young or you haven't gotten that yet, what do their ancestors look like? The grandam, the grandsire, um, you know, are they better than anything that you have in your herd right now? Um are you going to be able to see some improvement because of what's behind those animals? Then maybe that's one that you could consider also.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with that aspect there and looking at the past in order to protect the future of what that's going to involve there. Um, you know, they're also I think about it in really well-developed breeding programs, um, you know, saying, paternal grandam is better you know when you have does that might be significantly lesser in terms of quality but they produce really rock star offspring um this is something that necessarily might not work for your breeding program i can see that too yes and again that goes back to the first statement is you know do you have the experience enough to recognize what is a good animal
0: right nope i agree
1: I think the next thing is there is, and this is something that I have preached on and harped on, not only just on this podcast, but in my own personal breeding program and in Catherine's breeding program is, does this buck align or sire align with my goals? Because that is huge. What is your goal as a breeder? Okay. So to say it, so to say it, so. I'm trying to think how to put this here because so if you're buck, if you're trying to bring in a buck that, for example, would maybe add some length in, you see um, Joe Blow Schmo that's 10 miles away from you have a buck kid out of a nice doe. Um, hello, you're like, okay, that might work. But does that align with what goal you're trying to improve upon there? So to me, it's not just about a nice buck is available it's about is the right buck available in order to get me to where my goals are
0: yeah i would agree with that too and that's going to be different for different people you know that's why that's why dairy goat breeding is such an art one mm-hmm. one size does not fit all and so um being able to see what your herd needs really helps direct you hopefully to the right buck that's going to bring that bring that out to you hopefully
1: Yes. Yes. Agreed here. Um, Continuing on the chart here, is this a repeatable breeding? Um, Yes. Or, 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 you know, I don't really consider repeatable breedings as a thing to me when the marketplace.
0: I don't either. And it's not that I think that there's not value to that. But on the other hand, you know, for me with a small herd, it's very rare that I repeat a breeding because, you know, by the time I see. I I really want to see what that doe is going to do, what that breeding is going to do before I repeat it again. So that's two years down the road, at least. Yep. And um, I I don't necessarily do a repeatable breeding mm-hmm. for that reason, but I can understand why some people would consider that to be important. So this next part part on the chart, Cameron, um, I want to see what your thought is on this, and I'm not saying that this isn't this isn't a good thing to consider. I'm just saying it's something that I haven't necessarily considered. Um, Does, does this buck have a twin sister whom I could evaluate and then repeat that breeding? Do you think that it is important for a buck that you use to have a sister that is exceptional?
1: No, I don't think it does. Genetics is so much of a crapshoot as I, as I like to say there that the, you know the buck can be really ugly but the da- but the sister can be really nice or or vice versa. Also, I I don't and this is my personal philosophy is I don't buy bucks based on what they look in phenotype. I buy them on genotype and how it will play well with my herd.
0: I could echo that sentiment perfectly, Cameron. And you know, I've thought I've thought a lot about bucks over time and I know that I probably have a personal bias against beautiful bucks. I mean, I, I admire bucks that are beautiful, but I also know back from my Nubian days, I had the opportunity to use, um, a beautiful spotted buck that had ears almost down to his knees. And he was just beautiful and came from, um, West coast genetics, which not slamming West coast at all for a little Midwest breeder. That was a big deal to get to use a buck that came from the West coast. Um, Anyway, he was a beautiful buck. He was so beautiful that when he walked across the ring, grown men would cry. Not, you know, not really, but he was beautiful. Um, Anyway, (laughs) one, I think he won best buck and show at the Hoosier classic as a yearling. Uh, He was just outstanding. And, oh my gosh, his daughters were just not, I mean, he, this buck, could make the biggest change in an udder of any buck that I had ever seen up to that point um, as a breeder. And I didn't say improvement. I said change because I don't think he had a single daughter that didn't have a swinger. It was terrible. So that kind of taught me early oh, on wow. um, a pretty buck is a pretty buck, but it's what he throws, not what he looks like necessarily.
1: Yeah. I agree with you on that. So, I, I don't know. I, I don't generally look at the twin sister on this. I get why people would say that there. So, yeah. Yeah. I, the next question on here becomes Are his kids, are his sire's kids clear improvements over other animals in my herd? I think that's a good statement there. Um, and you can see and make sure you're getting one of the most superior animals into the. Gene. And
0: I also think, too, a buck that crosses well with my. Herd may not cross as well with somebody else's herd, so at least if you can evaluate kids out of that line, um, you know that the general confirmation is there and it crossed okay. So I think that's important.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. There, um, yeah, I, I think there. And so the next one kind of just talks about is the buck, you know, superior, clean from defects. I think that's really important. I, I think you don't want a bad representation of what's going out into. The, the the gene base unless it's pre-ordered. I don't mind selling, you know, a a buck kid that might not look the best uh, phenotypically as long as the buyer understands that that's what they're
0: getting. I would agree with that. You know, and, and, and I think, and there are many buyers who can tell you this the wrong because they've learned it the hard way. Before you send a buck out, make sure that you check its teats and make sure that you check, everything on it make sure you're not missing something that's a defect because it's really embarrassing if you do miss something like that
1: yes and and i we've almost set bucks out with defects and and one of these days i'll tell you the craziest stupidest thing that we've ever done um and i'll tell the the, the whole world about it too because i think a lot of people know but um Yeah, I I think, you know, checking teats, not once, not twice, but three times. Um, We do it when they disbud. When we disbud, we'll check teats and testicles. We will check them again when we um, do a tattoo. And then we will do them a third time. I like to do them in front of the buyer to say, um, this is is what you're getting. I want you to verbally confirm that, you know, you see everything is correct. That's a good
0: idea. Very good
1: yeah <laughs> yep so i i think the chart is a great place to start here but for the sake of time i think we can put the chart away and we can talk about some of our other experiences here
0: so um i would say that i'm a strong pedigree breeder because i really like i i like genetics and i like looking at animals and and i'm a big believer in line breeding what do you think about that cameron
1: i am too Um, but I I think when it comes to like deciding if they're going to be good or good fits or not, I think it's important to work with the buyer and say what they want, especially what traits they want to improve upon. For example, I had somebody call me here actually from, from Laura's area and was just like, Hey, I need to improve my feet and legs on some of the stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, here's, here's what I have for feet and leg animals that I think will be good and pass them along. And I gave them some recommendations. They looked at some breedings and went on there. So and picked the doe and whatnot.
0: Yeah, I think that it, especially, you know, you talked earlier about having that trusting relationship with a breeder. Um, it's really important for you to ask the breeder if you're considering getting a buck from them, um, you know, is this going to do what I want it to do? Because they, nobody would know better than they would. I agree there. I think looking at. You know, LA scores. When we bought this,
1: um, we bought this buck from California. Here, we looked at the LA scores of the mom, and then we looked at them the the sister, and it was like a no brainer to bring this buck in there um, because of the strong LA scores. There were some milk records as well that we liked, but most importantly, we looked at that darn pedigree. Yeah,
0: I think so too. Um, you know. I've had people, and Cameron, I know that you've had people ask you this too. Um, You know, well, this, I have this doe in my herd. Let's call her Butterfly. She's the best doe that I have in the herd. And I made a really mindful AI breeding to this top sire who's known for fixing this. And um, what do you think about me keeping a buck out of that to improve my herd?
1: Yeah, I've I've seen that before. People asking for for recommendations from me. Um, I don't I don't like to give people recommendations on what they should keep because I don't want to be wrong. <laughs> if sure. that makes sense. <laughs> so I I try to straight away or I try to say, I try to get them to think what they're hoping to improve upon when it comes to that. There, so. Let's take, for example, my herd. When I say I want to keep a buck out of this AI breeding and this goat, I think about what traits do I want to pass along to my herd from there.
0: Well, and I think I think that's a good place to start. I also think, though, sometimes people who are new starting out um, th- feel like a good way to improve their herd is by keeping a buck out of their best dough and make a mindful breeding and use that to breed up. And I'm not going to say that you're not going to get some improvement doing that, but it is going to be so slow to do that. And especially if you're just starting out and maybe exactly. don't have, maybe your animals have quite a ways to go. Cause you're just, you know, again, you're just starting out. You've picked up some nice does to begin with, but, um, you know, maybe they have some faults that, that you really need to improve on. I would argue that you are better off going to a herd and um, buying a tightly bred buck that's going to make a big genetic impact on your herd, breed everything to that buck, and then move forward. I, I would argue that it takes a while to be at a point in your breeding program that you can keep back a buck to use yourself and still make some improvement. What do you think about that statement?
1: I I agree with you on that. Or you could look at it like this is where you bring in a doe that's outside of your herd base, um, you know, might be distantly related or whatever, but you can bring them in and keep a buck out of them because it's not related to what you have going on there. Um, and either br- trying to breed it back in with maybe a buck that's from your own lines or whatever. We did that, for example, where we, we kept a buck. We used a buck. We liked his daughters. This is in the alpine world. Uh, we liked his daughters, but we didn't like some traits that we were getting. So we bred him to one of our best does that had those traits that we want that we didn't like in the daughters. And we saw an improvement when we used that,
0: that son of that buck. So you still him. got some of the things that you brought that buck in for, but it was tempered with the strong traits that you pulled out of the dough. Correct. Interesting. Good idea. So that's, that's a concept to consider. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah,
1: I think it's a good, it's a concept to consider when thinking about selecting a buck or putting a, putting a band on them as well there. One thing I, I do like to think about if you're going to band or not is, is really knowing your market for that. You know, if you live in, I'm just going to pick a random state. If you live in Mississippi, you might not have that much demand for sables as you would if you lived in Indiana, for example. So really understanding your market is really important, whether you put a ban on them or not. I'm not going to lie to you either, as I only probably sell about 12 to 15 bucks a year from my herd.
0: And that's two breeds, Correct.
1: That's, that's, that's across two breeds. And that I think is kind of, I, I think I'm a highballing it here a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, I have a much smaller herd. Um, I think the most that I've ever sold in a year, I think I sold four bucks one year. If I don't have bucks pre-reserved, it's very seldom that I don't go ahead and band, band them, band them and sell, send them on. Um, you know, I've, I'm lucky that I have a lot of people that like to raise bottle babies and uh, I'm very happy to let them go almost soaking wet to get them out of my herd and and get them into somebody else's loving care so I don't have to take care of them then.
1: Yes, we, we do not have that luxury, I will say, <laughs> um, where we, you know, I think about our sable herd where the market is so small for sables. Even here in the Midwest, where I would say, you know, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, even part in Missouri, you know, that's where a concentration of the sables are in the U.S. Uh, The market's still so small, though. So we might only sell three to four sable bucks a year. Um, So, you know, thinking about your market there is really, really, really important when it comes to deciding to ban them. Well. Take for example, I saw some. Well, I was going to say
0: you're not going to honk your own horn, but you have national champions for the sable breed in your herd, and so to to say that you only sell three or four bucks a year, that's I mean that's really showing that's really showing a mindful commitment to not selling bucks that that you don't have a good market for. Thank you. I
1: I, yeah, it's something that I just feel very passionate about because if if you don't sell the best and and get rid of the rest for lack of a better terms then then you can't progress as a breed for yeah i would agree so i think that there but one question i do have for you laura is do you ever keep a buck intact and maybe he doesn't sell right away but you keep him around all summer long and then somebody comes along at the end of the summer says hey i need a buck."
0: (laughs) i did that a couple years ago um uh, did that exact same thing because I don't know about you, Cameron. It seems like every year that I don't have bucks, I could probably sell five or six come the first of September because people, people didn't yep. do it, but I, I'm not doing that anymore. And I'll tell you why. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to keep a buck around that either isn't pre-reserved or is outstanding enough that I want to keep it and use them myself. And, um, those bucks that I would keep around that long, most of the time, they're not going into herds that, that, um, necessarily care about the same, um, progress that I'd like to, that I'd like to see made. It just, it just didn't work out very well for me. It was a lot of work. It was a buck that, you know, here I'm keeping him to the beginning of breeding season. I don't want to use him, but he's acting, he's a pain in the neck because he's a buck. And it just, it just wasn't a positive experience for me. Have you done that? Yeah, we
1: probably do that every year. We'll keep, you know, two alpine bucks and a sable buck back just for... People that late to the game or they weren't really thinking about it and whatnot. We generally get rid of them. Um, sometimes, sometimes they're to great homes. Sometimes they're to commercial dairies. Sometimes they're to the Amish people that need a buck. Um, so we do find that we have a market for September, you know, bucks that do stay around until September. But again, they have to be pretty good uh, to stay around. And we also have to be thinking in the back of our minds, hey, if we wanted to use him on a doe or two, we could as well. Yeah,
0: I just don't have. I just don't have the room to do that, and and it didn't work out well for well for me. However, as one of those people that um probably benefited from you guys keeping a buck back, that maybe you weren't necessarily going to. I appreciate that. You know who I'm talking about too.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I know. What, I I know who you're talking about. Yes, I, I I know exactly who you're talking about there. So what we do, what we have done in the past is, if we don't, you know, we don't. If we have a buck back and we're like, okay, well, you know, maybe one of our friends, i.e. Laura, can can lease him out and use him on some goats, Um, you know, that is a possibility too. And then we know he's getting some action. We can evaluate some
0: daughters on the ground, but necessarily we don't have to incorporate him yet into our breeding no, program. No, but you did get to see what he threw and you got to see he was a good buck to use. And so I can see if you've got the room to do that, that, that could be a very good thing. I just don't have the room to do it. So, um, yeah, exactly. Maybe, maybe I could find a exactly partner there. that, you know, down the road, maybe I could tuck a buck over in there on their property to use kind of in a similar fashion and maybe use him again down the road. But, um, I don't, I haven't typically done that. No.
1: Exactly. One thing that Catherine and I really talked about, um, very strongly about it, actually when we were when we, we were brainstorming for this topic was because Catherine was in the truck and we were coming back from picking up our buck and whatnot is selling a buck kid with intention. Making sure that you're very purposefully um, selling buck kids and making sure you know exactly why you're letting that buck into the gene pool.
0: Oh, that is a, that is an interesting thought. So explain a little bit more about that.
1: So making sure that you say, hey, I know this buck, kid, because the dam has outstanding general appearance. I know the buck is throwing consistent daughters that have good general appearance. I know this buck is going, should be able on paper to produce bucks or does with good general appearance. So making sure that you're very intentional about which ones you sell, even if that means potentially coming down on your price point. Because I know there has been times when I want to get rid of a buck, so I come down on my price.
0: Yes, price. and I have done that before too. Or um, if you know somebody is going to take good care of it and you know that there's a good chance that maybe down the road you could buy bar- borrow it back or buy it back or get semen back out of it. Um, intentionally placing that back- buck someplace at a lesser price so that you can have access to them I think is a great is a great option, good for you and good for the breed.
1: I call those honey holes where you can
0: honey stack holes. Them. I like that.
1: Uh, <laughs> we actually, we actually, so we have an outstanding sable two-year-old this year that both. My Dad and I and Catherine really, really, really love. We actually put that buck ironically, he was a buck that we had kept until he was a yearling. He was supposed to be sold, but he no one took him. um we have her him potentially stashed at a honey hole, and you need to call the breeder and see potentially if we could get him back or lease him back or something so um stashing them in a honey hole where you know where he is, he's going to be used and appreciated, but you can get something back or him back uh at a future time
0: yeah that's i think that's that could be really beneficial too um question for you cameron not just thinking about little bucks but um how do you know when it's time to let a mature buck leave your breeding program
1: it's a great question Uh, i think there's a couple things one um there you need to know that you got to think about if you can use him or not anymore. So you think about um, you know what you have going on. Uh, for example, just for example here, I'll use our buck Mo. For example, I like Mo, nice guy, um, nice daughters, consistently nice daughters. Um, but I know that I have daughters of out of him and yearlings all the way through four years, four or five years old right now. He's getting pretty. You know, you really can't use him on a lot of stuff because either his daughters have daughters, or uh, he, you know, is breeding his daughters and whatnot. So there's just no room in the inn, essentially.
0: Right. Yes, I think that happens, especially in a so, smaller herd like mine.
1: So there's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think that's number one. Number two, the buck is not doing what you thought he would do. Um, you know, you maybe brought him in because you wanted to increase, you know, front end assembly. Maybe he's not, maybe he's regressing that trait. Maybe he's throwing undesirable traits. So I think about going back to the one buck that we sold that threw a lot of positive things, but also through some negative traits that we didn't like because of those negative traits really outweighed the positive traits we had. We obviously had to move him down the road.
0: I had a buck like that and, and it was a buck that I bought fairly early on in my um, alpine breeding program and uh, we bred everything to him and we just had a small herd. I mean, it was a smaller herd than what we have now. Yeah. Um, what we saw was that he threw amazing mammary systems on every one of his daughters. There was not a single udder that he threw that was not beautiful. I mean, they were just everything you'd want out of an udder but he decimated things general appearance wise. Um, He, he took away good front ends. He gave us some ugly heads. He gave us um, some toe out. And I absolutely do not like does that toe out. Um, He took away angularity and took away some dairy character or dairy strength rather. So, um, you know, we, we got him collected and we moved him on down the road. Now, we have brought him back and have used him at times when uh, we've felt like that our herd was strong enough in other, other areas that we could bring him back and, and have gotten some beautiful daughters and actually finished a daughter out of him last year. So I think it's good to know, like you said, when those negative traits are outweighing the positive traits, it's time, time to move him along and maybe you can bring him back or maybe not. But uh, don't stick with a, sh- a ship that's not going the direction you want it to go.
1: I think as well as if there's an opportunity to move him and you don't think you're going to need him, selling mature bucks is really, really hard. Like moving them
0: is hard. And Laura, I know you and I have had conversations off the mic about this. Yes, <laughs> um, very definitely. Because so this is something that I just find interesting and it happens all the time. Um, people will spend lots and lots and lots of money for a baby for a baby buck and it is really hard to get a comparable amount of money out of a mature buck when you go to sell it. And I just find that very interesting.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you on that. And, and, you know, (laughs) obviously I tried to, I've tried to sell mature bucks in the past and have not been able to recoup somewhat of what I paid for him. Just last year, I moved a, a mature buck. He was five, um, so I knew he was getting older and whatnot, but I got you know what I had paid for him, obviously, for um, you know the price and whatnot. But that was probably not what he was worth, obviously, because he was a mature buck and he had an offspring on the ground and he had done very well. And the show ring is probably worth more, but at the end of the day, you kind of just got to know your – your market sometimes as well and mature bucks are not good in the market.
0: Right, they're not. And you know, it's not always just related to that somebody's not willing to pay for the quality. Many times people will say, you know, that's that's a great price. I can totally see where that buck is worth that price and and I see why you priced them that way, but it is so detrimental when you look at the price of transport as you found out you have to factor that into the price as well. So if it's not, if you're not going to be able to drive there and pick that buck up um, many times, the buck you're looking at is, is across the country. And it's just, um, it's just really prohibitive when you consider how much it would cost to bring that buck home. So I think that's something that has to factor into those prices too.
1: And it's not just transport. It's, you know, the hay and grain to get them from there. It's all the prep work and you know, it's the CVIs you need. And sometimes it's a CAE test, you know, if, if that's an important thing to you. Um, you know, it's there's a lot of prep work when it comes to getting a new mature animal, especially a buck.
0: I would agree. And, you know, sometimes at the end of the day, I think you have to sit back and think, okay, yes, he's worth more than this, but he's also given me a lot of beautiful daughters in my herd. And um, I've sold those daughters and gotten money for those daughters or they've been good producers for me or I've sold semen out of them or I still have semen out of them. Maybe it's okay to let him go for a a little less than what maybe he's worth just because you want him to have a good home where he's going to end out his days being valued and well taken care of.
1: I've extracted my value of whatever I paid for him for. You know, I I think I can charge. In the case of, let's just pick on Mo for example. He was, and it's public knowledge. He at one point on my website he was for sale. Nobody was really interested in him at a thousand dollars. Um, but you know, I know that I've got you know a thousand plus dollars worth of kid sales out of him, plus the impact he's made on our herd plus the national notoriety of what he's provided in terms of marketing dollars as well. So maybe I could have came down to eight hundred seven fifty for him as well, but we didn't. So,
0: right. And I think, you know, I think you have to have to do what feels right to you too. You know, um, you, he certainly would be a buck that could benefit many, many herds. So, you know, he's benefited your herd too. So that's, that's a lot to consider there. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. I think just on, you know, the the bucks and and buck train here and thinking about making the tough cut here, um, you know, really it comes back to, and I will harp on this, I will preach on this, is consider what your goals are as a herd, whether you're letting go of a mature buck or you're thinking about keeping a buck intact, and let that really be a driver in the decision that you're going to make, whether, you know, you move a mature buck or you're, you're keeping and and marketing it intact.
0: Yes. And I, and I also want to end my thoughts with, with something that was told to me a long time ago by um, my first breeder mentor that I ever worked with. And um, he said, you know, keep this in mind. Anytime you're, you're gonna pick a buck, take a good look at that buck's mom. It's that bucks dam. And if you don't want a whole herd of animals that look like that buck's dam, probably walk away from that buck. Now there are other things that factor into what a buck can do for your herd, but I've always felt like that that was pretty valuable, um, pretty valuable advice. And it's really not ever struck me wrong.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a great way to finish out there. Uh, Just a, a reminder, folks, just, Think about it with your head before you start marketing animals um, and and just really take that into consideration um, when it comes to this time of year here. But I think lots of great information, lots of stuff to chew on if you're a breeder um, with whatnot and really thinking about, you know, do they stay or do they go um, and whether if they go, are they intact or not?
0: That's right. Because, you know, you, you don't have to send them, you don't have to send them away intact. Oh, and I get, you know, one other thing, yes, one are. other thing just to pop out there too. You know, if you have somebody that says that they would like to have a buck to breed their does to, you can sell a buck without papers. If that's, if all they want is something to get their does in milk, don't be afraid of selling a buck without papers. That's probably a better thing to do than to have substandard genetics in, in with papers. Cause we all know there's lots of bucks out there like that.
1: Yes, I agree. One last thing on on my uh, my thought here is if you're gonna take animals to the sale barn, make and you don't want them to be bucks, make sure you put a rubber band around their nuts, so that no one calls you later and says, "Hey, I figured out these were your goats. Can I have a blue paper?"
0: <laughs> right, absolutely. I would agree a hundred percent with so that. That that is my that. That
1: is my final thought for this one here. You can even
0: tattoo them in the ear with the words meat. Let them go that way.
1: Ooh, that's a yeah. good one. I like I've that. heard that too. I have to find my M, my E, my A, and my T.
0: <laughs> good luck with that. <laughs> so Cameron, our guest next week, you want to give a little more information rather than just the fact yes. we're having a guest? Yes,
1: we we have a guest, and everything has been lined up. I made the stars align. It took a little bit more legwork. So I apologize to the listeners for that. But I'm excited to ha- um, have on Sarah Adamson from Vita Plus Co op. She is the first dairy goat nutritionist for um, Vita Plus um, ever in the history of that company. Very exciting. I grew up showing against uh, Sarah. Um, and her family's farm, the Maran uh, dairy goats farm. Um, we've been friends for, for years now, and it's been really fun to watch her grow up and embrace and lean into the dairy goat lifestyle with her career. So, um, get excited for that. I
0: can't wait. I'm so excited to see what kind of information she has to share with us. And, and, um, she's just a neat person anyway, all around. So I'm excited to see this next week. Yeah.
1: Yes. As always, you can find us on the Facebook, uh, GoatGab. Feel free to give us a like, a review, a rating. Tell us what we're good at. Tell us what we're not good at as well because uh, we do want to continue to make this a grateful listener experience um, for for you guys. And um, yeah, find us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. I think we're on Podbean, I think. I don't know. Podbean maybe. So find us wherever you listen to your uh, – there. Uh, and if you want to uh, tell a friend, a little guerrilla marketing as well. Yeah.
0: And leave us, you know, leave, leave us a um, uh, five stars. If you feel like we worth we're worth it. Um, ratings are always appreciated and, and we do read every one of them and um, keep track of the questions that y'all ask because we try to incorporate those in future podcasts as well. So uh, thank you for being our listeners. Thank you for joining us this week. And uh, thank you, Cameron, as always, for being an amazing co-host.
1: And thank you, Laura, as well. Listeners, have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.